Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for this week you've given us. We want to thank you for the beautiful sunshine we have this morning, for the rain you sent this week to nourish the earth, for new beginnings as we're preparing to enter into spring. And Father, we pray that you will be with us today. Help us to look at your word, to understand who you are, and to draw closer to you, and to truly set aside this day as a day of worship dedicated to you. In Yeshua's name, amen. Well, good morning. I am excited about today's lesson. The Lord had given this to me two or three months ago, and I prepared it and was just waiting for the right time to do it. Uh, what I want to talk about today is something that started 2,000 years ago. There was a new movement that was born within Judaism. And what you have to understand is there was a number of different sects of Judaism at that time. This one, however, was very different than all those others because its adherents proclaimed their leader to be the promised Messiah, something none of the other sects did. And that Messiah was the very son of God who we know as Yeshua. Today, we refer to that movement as the Messianic movement. But back in those days, it was most frequently called the way, as in the way, the truth, and the life. And its followers were often referred to as Nazarenes. So how many of you really know the history of the Messianic movement? Okay. I knew some of it. I didn't know a lot of it. So I've really enjoyed getting out and studying and pulling this together this morning. What I want to do is go back and look at its origins back in the first century and bring it all the way to modern times. And in order to do that, there's obviously 2,000 years to cover, so we won't be able to hit everything, but I'll hit the key points, and hopefully it'll give you a better understanding of this movement that we now refer to as the Messianic movement. In preparing this lesson, I consulted with a variety of sources. Most notably, I used the Fig Tree Blossoms by Paul Lieberman, Born a Jew, Die a Jew, the story of Martin Chernoff by his wife, Johanna Chernoff, with Jimmy Miller, I consulted the umjc.org website, the website that comes out of Israel, and if you've never looked at this one, it's a really interesting one, some really good information and videos out there, oneforisrael.org, and then jewishvoice.org, which is Jonathan Burness's ministry. You may be familiar with that one. It's critical that we understand the Messianic movement and the fact that it began strictly within the confines of first century Judaism and it started around 30 to 33 AD, and that all of the first believers were Jewish. Not some of them, but all of them. If we think back, that really shouldn't come as a surprise, because Yeshua himself taught that he had come only to the lost sheep of Israel. It was only after his death and resurrection, just as he was preparing to ascend to the Father, that he told his disciples to go into the nations and proclaim the redemption that was available in him. So up until that point, his message even was focused on the Jew Jewish people. The status of being a Jews-only movement began to change, however, when we get to Acts chapter 10. There was a Roman centurion named Cornelius. He and his family became believers, and after that, faith in the Messiah, Yeshua, began to spread like wildfire among the Gentiles. And soon we had a situation where there were actually more Gentile believers than there were Jewish believers. Even with that situation, the movement continued to be primarily led by Jewish believers throughout the first century. 
And before we go any further, I want to define exactly what we mean when we use the term messianic. The word comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which when translated into English is Messiah. That word means anointed one. So messianic denotes someone who is a follower of the Messiah, the anointed one. This is something that's kind of interesting. Historically, there were three national leaders of Israel who were referred to as anointed because they were actually anointed with oil when they went into their offices. There was the king, prophets, and priests. In his first coming, Yeshua ministered as a prophet. After his resurrection, he ascended to his priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. And when he returns, he will reign from Jerusalem as king. So we see here that he will fulfill all three roles. The only person in history that can ever qualify to do that. So he is truly the anointed one, the Messiah. We know from history that the first century believers, both Jewish and Gentile, continued to follow the religious practices of Judaism. They kept their relationship with the Jewish people. They followed the Torah. They upheld the Sabbath. They kept the feasts. They adhered to the dietary restrictions of the Jewish people. They attended the local synagogue regularly. They participated in the daily prayers. And they were accepted as part of the Jewish community. In other words, they did not start a new religion, but continued to live within that framework of Judaism. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 20, Paul tells his readers who had come to faith in Messiah Yeshua, only let each person live the life the Lord has assigned him and live it in the condition he was in when God called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the congregations. Was someone already circumcised when he was called? Then he should not try to remove the marks of his circumcision. Was someone uncircumcised when he was called? He shouldn't undergo brit malah, or the circumcision, which was a sign of, of uh, converting to Judaism. Being circumcised means nothing, and being uncircumcised means nothing. What does mean something is keeping God's commandments. Each person should remain in the condition he was in when he was called. Therefore, Jews remained as Jews, Gentiles remained as Gentiles. Although they worshipped in a Jewish framework, they were not considered Jewish. They were still Gentiles and maintained that separate identity. Speaking of the Apostle Paul, although many cite him as renouncing Judaism, when scripture is read in its proper context, we see that he actually did the opposite. After his road to Damascus encounter with Messiah Yeshua, Paul continued to live according to Jewish traditions and customs. He took a Nazarite vow. He even proclaimed in the present tense that I am a Pharisee. Not, I used to be a Pharisee. And he continued to uphold the Torah. And he was not alone. Acts 21, verse 20, which occurred somewhere around the year 55 CE, tells us that tens of thousands of Jews came to faith in Yeshua and continued to be faithful to the Torah of Moses. Some historians actually believe that number may well have been over a million. But regardless of the exact number, it was substantial. And the book of Acts tells us that the Pharisees and many of the priests were even part of the early Messianic movement. So it hit all areas of Jewish life. However, the rapid influx of Gentiles into the movement had a downside effect 
and actually led to a crisis. With some of the Jewish leaders holding the position that Gentiles needed to convert to Judaism in order to be part of the Messianic movement, while others, such as Peter and Paul, did not agree with that position. Peter based his view on the visions he had received of the sheet coming down and the proclamation from God not to call any man unclean. Similarly, Paul held to his belief based on the instructions he had received directly from Yeshua when Yeshua had commissioned him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. The issue finally became serious enough that a meeting was held in Jerusalem with the leaders of the, the movement, including James, the half-brother of Yeshua, and Peter, and that is detailed in Acts 15, and it's known as the Jerusalem Council. I did extended teaching on that early last year, so we won't go into it in detail. But I do want to say this. The ultimate outcome of that meeting was that the Gentiles did not have to convert, although there were certain things they had to do in order to be accepted into the fledgling community. Although the Yeshua believers faced a certain amount of persecution from some within the Jewish community in the early days of the movement, the truth is that many of the Jewish people accepted them. The believers worshipped alongside their non-believing Jewish counterparts in their synagogues, and they continued to be part of daily Jewish life for a number of years. But that began to change when Israel went to war with Rome in 66 AD. Hostilities between Israel and Rome had begun to escalate, and in 68 AD, the Roman army surrounded the city of Jerusalem. At that point, the Jewish believers fled the city, remembering the words of Yeshua in Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 24, which told them, when you see Yerushalayim surrounded by armies, then you are to understand that she is about to be destroyed. Those in Yehuda must escape to the hills. Those inside the city must get out, and those in the country must not enter it. For these are the days of vengeance, when everything that has been written in the Tanakh will come true. What a terrible time it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers, for there will be great distress in the land and judgment on the people. Some will fall by the edge of the sword. Others will be carried into all the countries of the Goyim, the Gentiles, the nations, and Yerushalayim will be trampled down by the Goyim until the age of the Goyim has run its course. The believers fled to Pella, which was a region on the southeastern end of the Lake of Galilee, beyond the Jordan. But their departure resulted in their being called traitors by the Jewish community at large. To make matters worse, in 78 AD, the Roman army came full force against the city of Jerusalem, destroying it along with the temple. Thousands of Jewish people were killed in the fighting, and thousands more were taken as slaves by the Romans. Many others starved to death because the zealots had taken control of the city and refused to let anyone leave during the siege. Many historians believe that the Jewish believers who had fled to Pella actually returned to Jerusalem once the war ended, and they once again made Jerusalem home of the Messianic community. Just before Yeshua's ascension, he had instructed his disciples to take the gospel first to Jerusalem, then to Samaria, and remember Samarians were part Jewish, part of the other nations, so they were half-breeds, but they were related to the Jewish people, and then to the nations, the Gentiles. For some reason, 
they'd been hesitant to do so. But with all the chaos and the persecution that began to present itself in the years following the destruction of the temple, they were eventually forced out of Jerusalem and they began to go out into the nations as Yeshua had instructed. Many of the disciples gave their lives for their witness while spreading the good news and the message of the Messianic movement throughout the known world. And I want to take a quick look now at some of those disciples. I don't know, how, I won't be able to elaborate a lot, but I want to kind of give you an idea of what happened to them, the, the price they paid, as well as how they had moved the gospel out of Jerusalem and out into the surrounding nations. The first was James, the son of Zebedee, who was also known as James the Greater. He was beheaded in Jerusalem by King Agrippa in 44 AD. He's the only one of the original 12 apostles whose death is actually recorded in the New Testament, and that's in Acts chapter 2, verse 2. Excuse me, Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Less than 20 years later, James, the half-brother of Yeshua, was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, stoned, and then clubbed to death just before Passover in the year 62 of the Common Era, or AD, whichever you prefer. Now, at that point, you see this is all in Jerusalem. Now we begin to move outside of Jerusalem. James, the son of Alphaeus, sometimes referred to as James the Less, in contrast to James the Greater, is one of, the of at least three different people known as James in the New Testament. There's some confusion at times as to which is which, but tradition implies that it was this particular James who may have taken the gospel to Persia, which is now modern-day Iran, and who was martyred there. Then there is Jude, the apostle, who many believe is the same person as Thaddeus. Tradition holds that he preached the gospel in Judea, okay, right there, in Israel, then to Samaria, Idumea, Syria, Mesopotamia and Libya. Tradition, and again I stress this is tradition, is that he suffered martyrdom by being axed to death around 65 AD in Beirut in the Roman province of Syria together with Simon the Zealot with whom he is usually connected. There are numerous accounts of Simon the Zealot's death but the earliest records were recorded centuries after his death so we don't know how legitimate they are. And just to kind of give you an idea of how varied they are, um, one tradition is that he was martyred in the kingdom of Iberia. Another says he was martyred in Persia in 65 AD, while Ethiopian Christians believe he was crucified in Samaria. Another account says he was crucified in 61 AD in Britain. In the 16th century, Justice Lipsius claimed he was sawed in half. Eastern tradition claims he died of old age in Edessa, so we don't know. Was he martyred? Was he not? We don't know. We don't know where he died or how he died. But we do know that he spread the gospel to other nations. Peter preached the gospel in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Britannia, Italy, and Asia. He died as a martyr for his faith in Rome around 66 AD under the persecution of Nero, being crucified upside down at his request since he did not feel he was worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Paul, who was not one of the original 12, but was still one of the apostles, became an apostle a year after Yeshua's ascension when Yeshua appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He began sharing the good news in Jerusalem, taking the message of the Messianic movement and Yeshua's gospel to the nations in his many missionary trips that are documented in the book of Acts.
He advanced as far as Illyricum, Italy, and Spain, preaching the gospel for 35 years. Then, in the time of Nero, he was beheaded at Rome around 66 AD, and he was buried there. Andrew preached to the Scythians and the Thracians in what later became the Soviet Union and is believed to be the first person to take the message of the gospel to that region. He also preached in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and in Greece, where it is believed he was crucified somewhere between 60 to 70 AD on an olive tree at Petrae, a town of Achaia, which is now Greece, and he was also buried there. Legend has it that he was nailed to a cross but was tied, that it took several days for him to die, and that he preached while hanging on that cross, and that that cross was actually on the shape of an X. Bartholomew, who many believe is the same person as Nathaniel, who's also mentioned in the New Testament, had a widespread missionary journey, and he traveled to many places according to tradition. He went to India with Thomas, and then to Armenia, and also to Ethiopia and southern Arabia. There are differing accounts of his martyrdom, just as there are with many of them. One being that he was crucified with his head downward, then buried in Alanum, which is a town of Parthia, while another claims he was flayed with knives and skinned alive in India. The date of his death is thought to have been somewhere around 68 AD. We just mentioned Thomas, who was probably most active in the area of Syria. Tradition has him preaching as far east as India, where the ancient Marthoma Christians revere him as their founder and claim he died there in 72 AD, when pierced through with the spears of four soldiers at Calamean, a city of India, where he was buried. Philip, we read about him in the New Testament. He's believed to have had a powerful ministry in Carthage in North Africa and then in Asia Minor, where he converted the wife of a Roman proconsul who was not happy about it. In retaliation, the proconsul had Philip arrested and cruelly put to death in Heropolis, Turkey in 80 AD. Matthias was the apostle chosen to replace Judas. Tradition has him going to Syria with Andrew. And as with several of the other apostles, there are varying accounts of his death, which is believed to have occurred in 80 AD. One tradition says he was stoned to death in the nation of Georgia and buried there not Georgia State, where we are. <laughs> Another tradition states that he preached to the barbarians in the interior of Ethiopia, where he died and was buried. And yet another one has him being stoned in Jerusalem by the local populace, then beheaded. According to Hippolytus of Rome, he died of old age in Jerusalem. So again, we've got another example. Was he a martyr? Was he not? We don't know. Matthew, the former tax collector, ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. Some of the oldest reports say he was not martyred, while others say he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia, with his death most, most likely occurring around 90 AD. And then finally, we come to the Apostle John. He's the only one of the original 12 generally thought to have died a natural death from old age. He was the leader of the assembly in the Ephesus area and is said to have taken care of Mary, or Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, in his home after Yeshua's death. During Domitian's persecution in the middle 90s, John was exiled to the island of Patmos. And it was there that he wrote the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Despite the ill fate most of them met, 
Acts chapter 17 tells us that they were successful in spreading the gospel and turning the world upside down. And that was really the point I wanted to make for you to see how this message went from being in Jerusalem only to going to all the surrounding nations. And as you see, these faithful followers paid a dear price for that message. But praise God, they were faithful to his calling. Otherwise, we would not be here today. As for the Jewish community at large, by 90 AD, rabbinic Judaism had been fomented by the Jewish leaders who had successfully fled Jerusalem before the massacre began, including most notably Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was a Pharisee. This is an interesting one. He, was, he pretended to be dead, because I, remember I told you the zealots wouldn't let anyone outside of the city during the siege. But he pretended, pretended to be dead. His disciples put him in a coffin, and they smuggled him out of Jerusalem in that coffin, saying they needed to go bury him. The soldiers actually wanted to stab the coffin to make sure he was dead, and his disciples were able to convince them not to do so. Otherwise, he would, not, he would really have been dead. But he was able to escape alive, and that's where rabbinic Judaism comes. He got together with a number of other leaders, and they created this whole movement that we now know today as rabbinic Judaism and completely rewrote Judaism. So the Judaism we have today is not the Judaism of the first century before the destruction of the temple. The Pharisees succeeded in getting almost all of the various sects of Judaism to become enmeshed in this new religion of rabbinic Judaism. But there was one glaring exception, the Nazarenes. Adherents to rabbinic Judaism felt empowered, and they began to excommunicate anyone who didn't play by their rules, and their primary target was the Jewish believers. Much persecution followed for the believers, whether they were Jewish or Gentile. For example, early in the second century, around 115 AD, Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, declared in his epistle to the Philippians that whoever, quote, celebrates the Passover along with the Jews or receives emblems of their feast, he is a partaker with those who kill the Lord and his apostles, end quote. In the epistle, Epistle of Barnabas, one of the apocryphal writings, it stated that Christians are the heirs of God's covenant with Abraham and that the covenant was meant for Jews and Christians, but that the Jews had lost it. More and more, the early church fathers turned away from the Jewish people, not only rejecting their teachings and the Jewish scriptures, but also becoming, unfortunately, openly hostile to them. Things continued to get worse for the Jewish believers because in 132 AD, a second war broke out with Rome. During the first year of the conflict, the believers actually fought alongside the Jewish people in what is known as the Bar Kokhba War, named after one of the generals, Bar Kosoba. Kosoba was a man of great valor and military genius, but when Rabbi Akiva changed his name to Bar Kokhba, which meant son of a star, Alluding to Numbers 2417, which states, A star shall go forth from Jacob. The believers understood what was being communicated. To Rabbi Akiva, he was proclaiming that Bar Kosoba was the Messiah because the term star was synonymous with the Messiah. And of course, the believers knew who the real Messiah was. Therefore, they could not accept Bar Kosoba as being the Messiah, so they had to pull out of the revolt, remaining true. To Yeshua. 
Once again, they fled to Pella, but this time they remained there and did not return. And once again, they were branded by the Jewish population as traitors for doing so. This completely severed whatever small connection might still have been between the two communities. And once again, the Romans were victorious. They tread Jerusalem. They renamed Jerusalem Alia Capitolina. They forbade all Jews, including those who believed in Yeshua, from entering it again for at least 100 years. So they were locked out of, Jer of Jerusalem. As the numbers of Gentiles continued to grow, the movement became less and less Jewish, both in terms of people and in terms of culture and practice. Some of the changes were due to the Gentiles simply not understanding Judaism, but others were made intentionally to remove any Jewish influence from the movement. Historian Paul Lieberman in The Fig Tree Blossoms describes that time as follows. The rabbis ordered that there was to be no contact with Jewish believers. The children of Jewish believers were declared illegitimate. Their sons were not to be taught a trade. No medical treatment was to be accepted from the believers. They were not to be helped when they were in need. Their food products were considered unfit for consumption, their books sorcery. By the mid-2nd century, one of the early non-Jewish writers, Justin, classified the believing Jewish community into four types of believers. The first were Jews who were part of the Gentile church. In other words, they had lost their Jewish identity. The second group were Jewish believers who were members of Jewish synagogues, keeping their Jewish identity, but keeping their faith in Yeshua a secret for fear of persecution. The third group were Ebionites. They followed Jewish customs, but they also believed it was mandatory for Gentiles to do likewise. And the fourth group were referred to as Nazarenes. They kept the Jewish customs, but they did not consider it mandatory for Gentiles. Even though the Jewish people were forbidden from entering Jerusalem, I do want to note that there was a very sizable population of Jews throughout other areas of Israel, so they didn't entirely vacate Israel. In fact, there were at least two villages that were populated entirely by Jewish believers. And many of the cities throughout Israel had substantial numbers of Jewish believers in them. So despite the persecution and exile, Messianic believers were still very much alive and living in Israel. However, the believing Jewish community was in a quandary. Jews who had not accepted Yeshua rejected the idea that the believing Jews were actually Jewish, and they considered them Gentile. On the flip side, the Gentiles felt very uneasy with them because they wanted to keep their Jewish identity. So the Jewish believers were truly isolated from both their Jewish brethren as well as the believing Gentile community. We get to 155 AD, Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, passed away. He was the last of the Messianic community leaders who had direct knowledge of the teachings of the disciples. And after his death, teachings that were not aligned with Yeshua and the disciples began to circulate. Shortly thereafter, in 196 AD, a council was held in Caesarea. It's notable that there was no Jewish participation at this council, the first time that it happened. And at that council, the day of celebrating Resurrection Day was changed from the 14th of Nisan to Sunday, and what would later become known as Easter Sunday. 
Although some people believe that the apostles changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, that's completely without substantiation. We've talked about this before. It's true that the Jewish believers did meet together for worship among themselves on Sundays, but that was after going to the local synagogue to worship with their fellow Jewish brethren on Shabbat. They did meet together for worship on Sundays, but that was in addition to and not in place of the Sabbath. And that's a very important distinction. Sunday never replaced the Sabbath to them. It was just an additional day of worship. In fact, the Jewish believers were so upset when they learned about the decision to change the celebration of Resurrection Day, they, they were just couldn't believe it. They were angry. To them, the season of Passover was even more important than the observance of the Sabbath, if you can believe that. And you know how important the Sabbath is to them, Passover, even more so. The decision put a rift between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, which ultimately led to a split over the observance of Passover in the third century. Jewish believers continued to stick to their beliefs, but as the Gentiles gained more and more dominance over the movement, the faith continued to lose more and more of its Jewish heritage. By the fourth century, the Jewish believers had begun to dwindle in numbers. The Gentile church had grown more powerful, and many of the church fathers began to clearly divorce themselves from the Jewish believers and the Jewish influence of their faith. Even referring to Jewish believers as heretics, believe it or not, the Gentiles began to view themselves as the new Israel. In 325 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine, who had ended Rome's persecution against the church and therefore many of the Gentiles really followed him and looked to him as if he were a good person because they were no longer being persecuted. He called the Council of Nicaea. At that meeting, the complete separation from Judaism occurred. Passover was totally rejected, not just changed to another date, it was rejected and it was placed with, replaced with Good Friday and Easter. Other changes were made that took the community even further from the original faith. Then at the Council of Antioch later in the fourth century, it was determined that anyone who celebrated the 14th of Nisan as the Passover was to be excommunicated. They meant business. By the end of the fourth century, although there were still Jewish believers, the Messianic movement itself had pretty much disappeared from the pages of history because of two opposing forces, Gentile Christianity on one hand and Rabbinic Judaism on the other. Jewish believers more or less assimilated into the church from that time until modern times. For many centuries, there was nothing that even remotely resembled Messianic Judaism. A Jewish person who accepted Yeshua as the Messiah simply assimilated into the Gentile church. Those who did not accept Yeshua's messiahship maintained their relationship with their local synagogue. Those were the two choices. It was that simple. That began to change, however, between 1800 and 1870 AD when a group of Jewish believers decided to maintain their Jewish identity rather than accepting Gentile Christianity. Among those leaders was Joseph Rabinowitz who founded the first modern Messianic congregation in Kishinev, Moldova, of all places. And it was called Israelites of the New Covenant. There, 
Jewish believers could worship Yeshua and freely maintain the practices of their Jewish heritage. There are also others who played essential roles in laying the groundwork for what would later officially be known as the Messianic movement or Messianic Judaism. And that's a term, the term actually Messianic Judaism first appeared in the Christian journal Our Hope in July of 1894 in an article that was entitled Christian Judaism. The author of that article declared that Christian Judaism was, and I quote, not a 19th century invention, but instead was as old as the days of the apostles, yea, as old as the Psalms of David and the prophecies of Isaiah and of Zechariah. Its roots lie in the oath-bound covenants of God with Abraham and with David. For the Jew, then, to believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah does not mean the adoption of a new religion entirely. It means simply the acceptance of the divinely appointed, covenanted Israelism as it will be restored or reestablished under Messiah, the King, Jesus, the Son of David. Why should the Jew of the present day be required to go through any process whatsoever that would have the inevitable tendency of denationalizing him and cutting him off from his own people such as and it goes on. And then it says, uh, for the Jew to deny this national distinction appointed by God himself is a very serious matter. It becomes a species of unbelief, end quote. What you need to understand is for such an article as this to appear in a Christian population at that time was almost unbelievable because the widely held belief of established Christian leaders, it didn't matter if they were Catholic or if they were, were Protestant. The belief was that the law of Moses had been done away with and that one should not put themselves under the bondage of the law. So the publishers, publishers of Our Hope were truly blazing a trail that would help create modern Messianic Judaism. The movement began to grow and between 1870 and 1960 alliances of Jewish believers began to form around the world. This was significant because Jewish believers could now meet as followers of the Jewish Messiah and still identify as Hebrews, rather than conforming to the expectations of the Gentile church. In 1866, the Hebrew Christian Alliance of Great Britain was established. It was followed in 1915 by the Hebrew Christian Alliance of America. One of the major focuses of the Hebrew Christian Alliance in its early days was preventing the assimilation and gentilization of Jewish believers. Ten years later, in 1925, the International Hebrew Christian Alliance was formed, and it included representation from 18 nations. The era of Hebrew Christianity opened the way for what we now know today as Messianic Judaism. In fact, the Hebrew Christian Alliance of America, and some of you may remember I mentioned that years ago, I remember when there was a HCA that met in the Sandy Springs area. That would have been maybe 40 years ago or something. Uh, maybe, maybe, no, I should have been more closer to 50 years ago. Um, was still around, and I was always curious when I'd drive by and see that sign, I was always curious about it was, and now we know. Years later, I found out. But the Hebrew Christian Alliance of America, the reason you don't hear that term anymore, actually changed its name in 1975 to the Messianic Jewish Alliance of America, the MJAA. And the International Hebrew Christian Alliance was also renamed in the 1970s. It's now the International Messianic Jewish Alliance, or the IMJA, and I'm sure you've heard of those terms and those organizations. In 1925, 
The first year of the IMJA, only two affiliated alliances were represented. There was the HCA from the U.S. and then the one from Great Britain. Ten years later, that number had grown to include alliances from 20 countries. So in 10 years, from 2 to 20. With the establishment of these HCA churches, Jewish believers finally had a congregation of their own. Although the service was very different from what we're accustomed to today in a modern messianic synagogue. As one example, while the Shema was typically recited and a handful of Hebrew words were used, the liturgy was not necessarily patterned after the liturgy of a synagogue. It was, in most respects, a Protestant church that just happened to be comprised of Jews, along with a smattering of Gentiles who had either married a Jewish person or had a love for the Jewish people and used a few Hebrew words here and there. That, so there really wasn't that much difference, but there was, there was still a distinction, but it wasn't huge. But then, something miraculous happened. Many within the Gentile church had accepted the doctrine of dispensationalism, it's a big word, about this long, and other teachings that sought to replace God's promises to the Jewish people and give those promises to the church. In other words, in their view, the church was now the Israel of God, since the nation of Israel no longer existed. Hmm. May 14, 1948 comes along. The nation of Israel was reborn in a day, just as prophesied. In Ezekiel 37, 21, and 22, what had seemed impossible for centuries had now become reality. This event helped spark the fan, the flame that had been ignited in the hearts of many Jewish people, and they began to return to the land of Israel from all those nations to which they had been exiled. In fact, in 1948, there were approximately 10 million Jewish people around the world who had survived the Holocaust. About 600,000 of them were living in Israel. It's a sizable group. But of those 600,000, only 23 of them believed in Yeshua as their Messiah. And there was a reason that that number was so small. I want to talk about that quickly. You have to remember that prior to Israel being declared independent and becoming a nation, the people had lived under the Balfour Declaration of 1917. That established a British mandate for a Jewish homeland. During that time, there had actually been several hundred Messianic Jews living in the land of Palestine, as it was known then, while others were attempting to immigrate there. Although Messianic Jews were extremely unpopular with the Jewish community there, they were still free to practice their faith. However, as the British began making preparations to leave, the nations around Israel decided to declare war, and they made clear their intention to drive the Jews into the sea. Church clerics and missionaries who felt responsible for the believers in their care were deeply concerned. If the Arabs won, they certainly would not discriminate between those Jews who believed in Yeshua and those who didn't. If Israel won, they feared the new Jewish state wouldn't be friendly to them either. So a program dubbed Operation Grace was born. It offered passage by sea for all Jewish believers who wanted to escape what was thought by many missionaries at the time to be an inevitable disaster. A place on the ship and guaranteed asylum were provided under the auspices of the Anglican Church, and Messianic Jews were strongly encouraged to take advantage of it. 
Almost all of them did. They were taken by boat from Haifa port away from the land of Israel with only three or four families remaining. That's why there were only three Messianic Jews in Israel when the state was reestablished in 1948. There were obviously no Messianic congregations, although there were some churches. But that began to change as more Jewish people, including believers in Yeshua, returned to Israel. But now let's go back to the U.S. By 1960, the Hebrew Christian Alliance churches had been planted in several parts of the country, and elements of Jewish expression of faith in Yeshua were becoming more common. A few of the congregations had an ark and Torah scrolls and even celebrated some of the Jewish festivals. Other congregations, however, continued to remain little more than a typical Protestant church who happened to identify as Jewish. Then, in 1965, a youth group known as the Young Hebrew Christian Alliance was formed, and the young people who joined this group would become influential in the rebirth of the Messianic movement. We then come to the year 1967. The importance of this year cannot be overstated because we can actually date the true rebirth of Messianic Judaism to this year. Israel was victorious in the Six-Day War, regained control of Jerusalem that year. For the first time in 1900 years, Jewish people were allowed to worship God freely at their holiest site. Many miracles were reported from the battlefield, and it was obvious that God had once again saved his people from their enemies. Witnessing those miracles and being able to once again worship at the Kotel, the wall, led to a global spiritual revival among the Jewish people. Hundreds of thousands professed faith in Yeshua as their Messiah, and they began forming congregations that allowed them to maintain a Jewish lifestyle while also following Yeshua. You would think that Gentile Christians who profess belief in scripture and claim to stand alongside Israel and the Jewish people would have been ecstatic at this fulfillment of prophecy before their very eyes. But unfortunately, this event actually caused a rift within the Hebrew Christian Alliance. A number of Gentile Christians had joined the HCA, as I mentioned earlier, either because they were married to a Jewish person or because they claimed to love the Jewish people. But instead of being happy, many of them were actually upset by the turn of events, even those who had fully supported Israel when it was reestablished in 1948. Consequently, many of the Jewish people seemed to be almost embarrassed by the victory because of the way the Gentiles had responded. And there's an explanation for this behavior. Many of these Christians held to a pre-tribulation version of prophecy, believing that the fulfillment of Luke 21:24 would not occur until after the church had been raptured. That verse states that Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles shall be fulfilled. If, however, the War of 1967 was the end of the time of the Gentiles, then that meant their theology was wrong. That made them feel threatened. They didn't like that. Some, in an attempt to validate their theology, claimed that since the Jewish people did not have control of the Temple Mount itself, then it was not a true fulfillment of prophecy, and that the event was little of, any, of little, if any, significance. That sentiment was not limited to the HCA, but unfortunately prevalent throughout mainstream Christianity. Most Gentiles just could not get excited about the victory because it messed with their pre-tribulation theology, a position many of them viewed as being an open and shut case. At the same time that the HCA was struggling with the fallout from Israel's victory in the Six-Day War, 
God was busy moving among the youth. For those of you who are close to my age and were raised in the Gentile church, you may remember the Jesus movement of the late 1960s, when young people, especially hippies and drug users, were becoming believers and really on fire for our Savior. Guess what? During that same time period, there was also a similar revival among the Jewish young people. At first, Christians tried to force these new Jewish believers into a Christian mold. Some were satisfied with that direction, but many had a desire to return to their identity and heritage. And they also had a burden to present a credible witness to their own Jewish brethren that Yeshua was indeed the promised Messiah. The timing was right. Society had now come to a point where these young Jewish people had the freedom to maintain their Jewish heritage and practices, while also embracing faith in Yeshua. They transitioned from being simply Christians who happened to be Jewish to being Jews who believed in Yeshua as the promised Messiah. And that new mindset helped shape the modern movement of Messianic Judaism. What would become the first official Messianic Jewish congregation in the U.S. was actually started in the home of Martin Chernoff in Cincinnati, Ohio. It started as a home fellowship, but in 1970, the Lord gave Chernoff a vision with two words, Messianic Judaism. And so the vision of a movement where Jewish people could be fully Jewish while expressing their faith in Yeshua, rather than having to assimilate into denominational church, was born. Congregation Beth Messiah was officially begun in October of that same year. The Chernoffs were very successful in winning the souls of the youth and discipling them into the Messianic movement, and their home was often filled with hippies and former drug users who had experienced a true encounter with their Messiah and were completely sold out to him. The newly saved youth who wanted to worship in a Jewish manner, and much of the establishment of the HCA who wanted to worship in a similar style as Gentile Christians, guess what? They clashed. Big clash here. The youth would ultimately win out, and in 1975, as I mentioned earlier, the name of the HCA would be changed to the MJAA. The Chernoff son, some of you may find this familiar, Joel was a pioneer in a new contemporary style of music with lyrics from scripture that would become part of the fledgling movement and that would become known as messianic music. He paired up with a friend, Rick Coghill, and together they formed the group Lamb. Rick had been a popular, well-known, heroin-addicted rock musician since 1963 and had played with such bands as the Lemon Pipers, known primarily for their number one hit Green Tambourine, for those of you who are familiar with music from the 60s. But Rick was miraculously delivered from his addiction when he accepted the Lord. Lamb's first album was released in 1972, the very first Messianic music album. The artists, other artists would soon follow in Lamb's footsteps, including the group Israel's Hope, which released their first album in 1986, which was four years after Lamb's first one. And Israel's Hope, featured someone we all know and love, Paul Wilbur. What you may not know is that Israel's Hope was not Paul's first group. During the time that Messianic music was beginning, Paul was busy recording with two of his Christian friends from college under the name of Harvest, if any of you have ever heard of that group. After releasing two albums with Harvest, Paul left, he formed the group Israel's Hope with Mark Chapinski, who went to be with our Lord last year, and Renee Block. 
they also released two albums. Then Paul went out on his own, and as they say, the rest is history. We, we know where Paul is today. Still recording. Not only did the youth lead the transformation of the movement from what was basically a church with a sprinkling of Judaism mixed in into what is a movement that is steeped in Judaism and transformed the music from church hymns to messianic music, borrowing heavily from both Jewish and modern tunes, but they also incorporated dance into their worship services. That began when the youth of Congregation Beth Yeshua began dancing exuberantly one day as a result of the overflowing joy they had in their newfound salvation in Yeshua. Some of the older people weren't very happy and they resisted at first, believing that dance had no part in the life of a believer. And if you come from the ch a church background, you probably grew up with that mentality. I did as well. Heard that all my life. But undeterred, the youth danced after service that day because they were so excited. They just had to release that excitement in some form. And they did that for several weeks thereafter, sometimes even dancing before service. It wasn't long before God began to move during their praise and worship time. And people began to realize that God was up to something with this. So shortly thereafter, they incorporated dance as part of their services. And as you know, it has spread. It's one of the defining elements of Messianic Judaism is Messianic dance. In fact, music and dance are both very powerful tools. I remember my first experience with Messianic dance at a Lamb concert in the mid-80s. I also saw how some people who had never witnessed dance as a part of worship were affected at a Paul Wilbur concert several years later. In fact, the impact of that concert on a number of people from a then very young congregation, Beth Adonai, is largely responsible for dance breaking out here in 2005, as I shared when I taught about dance a few months ago. In 1979, as Messianic Jewish congregations continued to spring up around the world, the leaders of 19 North American congregations gathered in Pennsylvania to form the UMJC, the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, the first congregational association among Jewish followers of Yeshua. The Union's first executive committee consisted of Daniel Jester, John Fisher, Leslie Jacobs, and Jeffrey Adler, names that some of you may be very familiar with still very much involved. Here locally, in the early 1980s, the Atlanta area saw two Messianic congregations planted, and it was at one of those congregations that I was first introduced to the Messianic movement. Now that we saw what has happened in the U.S., let's go back to Israel. Believers in Israel had struggled since the reestablishment of the nation in 1948. Their children suffered discrimination in school, and the majority of the Jewish population viewed them as traitors to Judaism, even after all those years. But in 1967, as it was a turning point for a lot of things, it was a turning point for Israel and for the Messianic movement. As I mentioned a few moments ago, against all odds, Israel won the 1967 Six-Day War, reestablished sovereignty over the Temple Mount and other holy places of Jerusalem, and at the same time, waves of revival broke out globally. The Jesus Movement of the U.S., which resulted in approximately one million young people coming to faith in Yeshua, one million, of those one million, many of them were Jewish, as I mentioned earlier. Same thing was happening, Gentile, Jewish, both revival. Many of those young Jewish believers immigrated to Israel in the 1970s, giving the body of Messiah and the land a much-needed boost both in numbers and energy. 
1989, Israel's Jewish population had grown to 3.5 million. And the estimated number of believers had reached 1,200. May not sound a lot, like a lot, but a lot better than those 23 in 1948. And at least 30 Messianic congregations were there in 1989. By 1999, 10 years later, the number had grown to 4.8 million Jews living in Israel, 81 Messianic congregations, and an estimated 5,000 believers. 2017, 300 Messianic congregations were counted. It has become increasingly difficult to ac accurately identify the number of Jewish believers. A conservative estimate in 2017 was 30,000. According to a survey conducted at that time, 60% of these believers were first-generation believers, meaning they were the first in their family to believe in Yeshua. The next largest group, second generations, those whose parents were also believers. And it's important because this reflects the fact that this movement is comprised of a young body, and the majority of growth is no longer from people immigrating or having children, but is due to people coming to know the Lord themselves. In other words, revival is taking place among the Jewish people. The study also revealed that Messianic believers in Israel tend to be very committed. 95% attend congregation three to four times a month, and 60% also attend a midweek service. And the movement continues to spread. In fact, I read recently that at the present time, this is now 2020, that it's estimated that there are 870,000 Jewish believers in Yeshua worldwide. Some scholars actually believe the number is much higher than that because some of these believers are hesitant to admit their belief in Yeshua for fear of persecution. They don't want to be rejected by family and society. So in reality, the number is likely much higher than 870,000. While the Jewish people in Israel have historically resisted and even persecuted Messianic believers in Israel, that is also beginning to change. Despite the ongoing persecution Jewish believers continue to face in some parts of Israel, Many Jewish Israelis are becoming curious about Yeshua and his message. The Messianic leaders in the land who have worked so hard to deliver messages have made an impact. Jewish believers such as Jacob Damkani, whose story of coming to faith has been portrayed in two movies shown in Israel in the Hebrew language, and Shai Sol, who was a contestant in Israel's equivalent of American Idol and who was very outspoken about her faith have also helped drive the conversation. Local news networks have run stories about Messianic Judaism because of the increasing curiosity. And this year, we'll see the rollout of a new Hebrew-speaking channel in Israel that has been given the right to preach the gospel in Hebrew. And while that may not sound like a lot, you've got to realize this. It has, up until now, been illegal to preach on TV the gospel in Hebrew. They could do it in English. There were English-speaking channels, but not in Hebrew. That was forbidden by law. The new station will be called Shalanu. For the first time, the Jewish people will hear the gospel in their own native language on TV locally. This means the message of Yeshua will be going throughout the nation of Israel, introducing Messianic Judaism to more people, both Jewish and Arab, and bringing, helping to usher in the return of the Messiah. And as the numbers grow, so does the need for more Messianic congregations, both here and in the land of Israel. 
and one that's near and dear to my heart is our own congregation, Beth Adonai, here in Tucker, which was founded by the Seculos in August of 2002. Although we began as a very small community, today, thanks to modern technology, we have blossomed into a truly global one, taking the message of the Jewish Messiah into homes around the world in places where no local, local Messianic congregation exists. So we truly have a window of opportunity here that is unprecedented with our technology. The witness of those who joined the movement in its early days and those who continue to minister in the fields are gathering in a harvest of souls, just as the original apostles did after their commissioning by Yeshua, just before he ascended back to his father. We are all looking forward to his return and his establishment of his kingdom on this earth. The reality is that the modern messianic movement remains a relatively new and young movement, and it plays an important role because as Messianic Jews and congregations may retain their Jewish identity, it proves to the world that God is not finished with the Jewish people and that the Gentile Christian church has not replaced Israel. Messianic Judaism is drawing the world's attention to the essential role of Israel, both the land and its people, in God's end-time plan. The Messianic movement is still developing. We see some parallels to its ancient form when it began with a small group of Jewish people and then expanded to include multitudes from the nations. Likewise, the modern messianic movement began by a relatively small group of people where Jewish people could express their worship within Judaism and a multitude from the nations has again been drawn into the movement. While the modern messianic movement was initially considered cultish by many Christians and Jews, it has grown and flourished into what is truly a worldwide movement whose influence cannot be ignored. For example, today we see that more and more Gentile churches are seeking to learn about the roots of their faith and align themselves with Israel. As one example, the King's University, founded by Jack, Jack Hayford, even offers full degrees in Messianic studies. There's a lot more, but time won't allow it. So what I want to do now is I want to close with some information uh, this was written by Jonathan Burness and posted on his Jewish Voice, Jewish Voice website. On that site, he discusses his faith that the Jewish people coming to faith in Yeshua in the numbers that we are witnessing today is evidence that we are in the end times prophesied in Scripture. Yeshua will come back to Jerusalem, but will only return after the blindness comes off the eyes of Israel and they embrace him as a nation. Remember, Yeshua wept over Jerusalem and told them, You will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. In other words, the Jewish people need to recognize who he is and also invite him back before he will return. Bernice also expresses his belief that the Messianic movement has been raised up to be a vehicle for revival for both the Jewish people and for the nations. Romans 11 Verses 11 through 15 tells us this. In that case, I say, isn't it that they have stumbled with the result that they have permanently fallen away? Heaven forbid. Quite the contrary. It is by means of their stumbling that the deliverance has come to the Gentiles in order to provoke them to jealousy. Moreover, if their stumbling is bringing riches to the world, that is, if Israel's being placed temporarily in a condition less favored than that of the Gentiles is bringing riches to the latter, 
How much greater riches will Israel in its fullness bring them? However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this. Since I myself am an, am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work and the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It will mean life from the dead. So what is this life from the dead? It's the restoration of all things as they were before man sinned. It's a return to the paradise that Adam and Eve experienced in total and complete harmony and relationship with God. It's the end of all sickness, suffering, and pain. It's the defeat of death itself, a glorious period of Yeshua's divine rule on this earth. There is an inseparable connection between the salvation of the Jewish people, the restoration of the nations, and the return of Yeshua. In other words, the Jews are the gauge of God's prophetic clock. As more and more Jews come to faith in their Messiah, we move closer and closer to that grand and glorious day when Yeshua will return to establish his millennial kingdom on earth. So let's continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and the return of Messiah Yeshua. So that, in a nutshell, is your history of the Messianic movement. So let's, let's close out in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for who you are. Father, we just love you, and we just, we're just in so much in awe to see what you have done, to see the pages of Scripture, the prophecy that's there unfolding before our very eyes in our lifetimes. It's almost unbelievable at times, but we know you are faithful and true to keep your word. We just praise you for all that you've done, all the witnesses you've given us, and help us to stay grounded in the faith, to never doubt you, to know that every single word in the Bible will be fulfilled just as you have said it would be, because you are not a liar. You cannot lie, because you are not man. You are God most high. You are above all and in all. So we just praise you for what you've done, and we continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and we pray for the soon return of Messiah Yeshua. Amen. Amen.